From Nickelodeon Animation in Burbank, California, this is the Nickelodeon Animation Podcast. Hello, animation lovers. I'm Hector Navarro. Welcome to the podcast. We are very excited this week because this is our season two finale. That's 40 interviews with the truly brilliant people behind some of our favorite animated characters and shows. To celebrate, we're gonna do something a little different. By now, you can probably tell that I'm not in our usual recording studio at Nick. I am, in fact, in the beautiful lobby of the brand new Nickelodeon Animation Building. To the left of me, beeping and making mechanical sounds, is a Rube Goldberg machine encapsulated in a giant steel head statue. Just outside is a wood carving of Stimson J. Cat sitting in a Zen garden. Behind me is a floor-to-ceiling Nick logo, complete with those little round light bulbs you'd expect to see on a 1940s movie marquee. And to my right, are three elevator doors. If you take one of those elevators up to the second floor, you'd find yourself among the talented and creative people that make the hit Nickelodeon animated series, The Loud House. And that's exactly what we're gonna do, because this week we're doing a deep dive into what it takes to write The Loud House. So let's go find out what it's like behind the scenes in The Loud House writer's room. Going Now, before we met the writers, we wanted to learn a little about the people at the helm. So we talked to Chris Savino. I am Chris Savino. I am the creator and executive producer of The Loud House. And Mike Rubiner. I'm Mike Rubiner. I'm the story editor for The Loud House. So, Mike, tell us a little bit about yourself. What is your job on The Loud House? Um, my title is story editor, which nobody understands. But it really is essentially being the head writer on the show. I have a staff of writers, four writers, and I kind of oversee the entire writing process from premise to final script. Chris, we've talked to you before, but tell us a little bit about your day-to-day role on the show. As executive producer and showrunner, I would say the whole show filters through through me, but I think at a certain point you, you give up a, a lot of the overseeing of people mm-hmm. and you just kind of trust that the people that you hire are going to do the job that you hire them to do and do it well. And I would say if luck was involved in it, I should play the lotto because I really lucked out with everybody that I've hired. Uh, yeah. Mike has a story editor. Sorry to use that term. Uh, you know, Amanda Rinda as the art director. Kyle Marshall is one of our uh, supervisors. And even Karen Malik, the, the producer. I just need to trust those four people and they need to trust their teams. Are you sort of like putting pieces of a puzzle together? Like, do you sort of, I feel like the way you're describing overseeing everything is that you are trusting your teams to go and do what they do and then they come back to you and you're involved in every step of the pro. Is that sort of like, you, you know, you're putting together a puzzle of a show? Sure. I, I love puzzles. Um, <laughs> it's like they're a train track, right? And, yeah. and all the cars are all the pieces of, of the production. And the train track is me, and I just got to keep things on track. And it's pretty, I hate to say easy, but they really make it easy. Yeah. its It's been such a smooth process from day one mm-hmm. that it's hard to even imagine working on a show that doesn't run smoothly, although I have in the past. <laughs> uh, it's just, I think I've... We've ruined it for everybody. Once they leave this show and see what it's really like out there, they're done for. <laughs> <laughs> the real world's going to hit them with some harsh reality. Ooh. 
why is this writing team the perfect writing team to be writing The Loud House? I think we just have four very talented people with different backgrounds and different points of view. I'm Whitney Weta. I'm a staff writer, former script coordinator. I was a really weird kid. In third grade, I loved our writing assignment because we like spread out all these papers on our desk and it was like kind of sexy to be a writer. <laughs> I'm Carla Sakis-Shropshire and I'm a staff writer. I was talking to one of my sisters the other day and she said that, you know, we used to watch all the 90s Nick growing up and she said that she had always assumed that these shows are written by other kids. Like that, you know, Clarissa was literally explaining it all to us and things like that. I'm Sammy Crowley. I'm current script coordinator and also writer. I did a lot of like stop motion animation like shorts with my like my little ponies where like they would go on like specific adventures and gosh that took so long but those were super fun to make and <laughs> I was definitely like a kid who for sure like played with toys for like until I was like inappropriately old. I might point out that you are well past the recommended age that this behavior is deemed acceptable. And I'm Kevin Sullivan, staff writer. I remember still playing with Legos mm -hmm. but instead of building what it was supposed to be I would build like a sound stage like a set from a TV show and then just do my little sitcoms in, that, in like the dark corner of the basement so no one saw me. There's all sorts of different strengths among the writing staff. Like yeah. I think you don't want to have a writing staff where everybody has the same strengths. Like everybody's great at punch-up in the room but they're not as strong on story or so I think it's nicely distributed that everybody has like a different strength that they Bring, and it all just kind of works together as a unit. And I think the longer that we've worked together, the better the process has become and the better everybody's writing has become. The way that they write these stories in a room almost together all the time gives you a consistency across the board with every script. Everybody adds to what the giant ball of the Loud House is. And we don't hire people and kind of force them into this thing of like, this is what the show is, you can't change it. Right. That I feel like the, the show is bigger than what even I can achieve on it. It's just grown beyond what an individual is. That's cool. And so when people say your show, me, no, 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 I always correct them as our show and not because I'm trying to be just diplomatic. A, a diplomatic guy saying our show. I fully believe it is our show. I think if you're writing a show, which is tough when you're writing a series, you want people who can come in and knock out a script. But I think we forego that to people who can come in and really want to be part of the growth of the show. I think Whitney's a good example, right? I She was our, our script coordinator. Uh, who would she typing all the notes in the room or whatever? I don't even think I knew she wanted to write, but she was in the room for months listening to these stories, and then we were looking to fill a position or fill a freelance slot or something, and I think it just occurred to both of us, like, well, who better than Whitney? Yeah, she's been in the whole she's time. Been, she's heard all the questions that we ask. She knows um, how the room works, and she already had a rapport with the room, obviously. So I ended up going to Columbia College, where I met Sammy. Um, and there, I remember I didn't like film editing because I felt like it, I was like a clash with all the people. Like, I was like, oh, this is not for me. We don't like the same stories. We don't like the same jokes. Like, first day of our program, we went around the table and just said like our favorite movie. And all these kids were like saying these movies like I'd never even heard of. I was like, Bridge Over the What River? <laughs> and like, I am getting, they're getting to me and I'm like, oh my God, I have nothing but you've got mail, but I love that movie. Like, okay. And 
remember saying it out loud and then just being like mortified. But then later, like finding the television department and like meeting people who actually also liked You've Got Mail. <laughs> and uh, they were, I was just felt like, oh, these are my people. Like, I don't know what they're doing, but I want to be a part of it. Like Sammy's really good with kind of building the story. Um, I was like seven or eight and my sister wanted to film um, an episode of The X-Files. So she like came up with this whole like idea or whatever. And I got to film it the whole time. And like afterwards I realized like, oh, like this is super, super cool and like really fun. And then after that, one of my friends and I like just started making like tons and tons of movies. And I don't know, it was something that we were always doing. Like I was always the kid with like the camera in my hand. Like at some point, like I taught myself how to edit. Like we were all about like making little films and I just, God, I loved it so much. <laughs> Carla has a certain, I mean, she brings a lot of realism into her stories. I think mm -hmm. that she pitches and writes the stories that are the most um, relatable. You know, we've got the episode where the two girls want to, uh, elevate themselves in the, like a, a Girl Scouts type uh, mm -hmm. troop. Mm -hmm. And it's based on her experiences as a child. And I think she, a lot of her stories come from actual experiences as a kid. You know, 90s Nick and like Simpsons were really big in my house. And we would kind of act out the shows ourselves as our fun, cool kid activity. <laughs> um, and from there, you know, from kind of imitating what we saw, we started kind of turning it into our own stories. and. And uh, I guess it just kind of sprang out of that and all the existing great characters and wanting to see them in new situations and, and things that related to, to what we were experiencing. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, like, Kevin uh, is the most experienced of our writers. He's been um, at Nickelodeon for a long time. I think he was on Fairly Odd Parents for, like, eight years or yeah, 10 years or something. Years. Yeah, 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense because the show's been on for 70 <laughs> years. So he was on for, yeah. Yeah, so he has the most... Um, experience, I think, in kind of structuring stories. I was 12, 13 years old, maybe. And uh, there was a soap opera on primetime called Dallas. And they did that episode of Who Shot JR? And I was flying back from Disney World with my family. And I got on an airplane and someone had left the Time Magazine cover story of that episode on my seat. So I read that on the flight back. And it was amazing to hear how they created the show, plotted the show, and how hundreds of millions of people around the world were waiting for the answer to that mystery. And it fascinated me, and I thought, I want to do that. Because every script is kind of filtered through the entire team, mm -hmm. it's got equal amounts of slapstick and equal amounts of dialogue that, are, that is good. And so the consistency of all the scripts feels right. And you won't have that kind of lopsided episode that feels like, well, that's a really Looney Tunes episode right yeah. there, and that one's really <laughs> chatty. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, they all equalize to a really good place. Now, especially that we've, you know, have quite a few episodes under our belts at yeah. this point, I can just sort of be kind of the conductor, and they're the orchestra. You know, that they pitch most of the jokes and they come up with most of the ideas, and I just kind of steer them. So we're going to follow the path a story actually takes as it's being written on The Loud House. This first step sounds incredibly cool to me. The writers call it the off-site, and it starts with them renting a house for a day. In Silver Lake, 
Um, we've met this guy who owns about half the mountain. <laughs> His name's Jeffrey, and he has a lovely space with lots of cats. And um, spend the day eating pastries and uh, pitching stories so everybody will come in. That sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, pastries are a great incentive for everybody. And we each come with about, like, five to ten short ideas where you at least know where the, the fun is. And then we'll all bring, like, nuggets, like... Clyde suddenly loses all his hair. <laughs> just like not a storyline at all. Um, and usually we don't really get to the nuggets because by the time each of us pitches five, we're feeling like, oh, please let one of those work. <laughs> it's fairly rare that somebody can come in with like a fully developed story that will work, but they always come in with like great ideas and they become jumping off points and then we'll kick that around and hopefully by the end of the day we'll have you know 10 15 20 stories mm-hmm. um, that we can kind of say well here's the next sort of piece of the railroad track that yeah. will get us you know through the next 10 half hours or so when we first started doing the offsites we would come in with a huge paragraph of this is the beginning of the story this is the middle of the story and this is where i see the story ending and Either it's gotten more difficult over time, or we've just learned that it's such a fluid process that now we come in with two sentences and just pitch those sentences, and usually the rest of the room will spark to it, and we'll get some kind of idea out of that. Mm -hmm. And even if, like, Carla came in and pitched, I think, two ago, I can't even remember what the pitch was, and she had a full-page pitch on that premise morning, read through, or like, oh, okay. She's like, well, I've got this other one, and just kind of Mm -hmm. off the cuff. You know, it's about Lori having a kind of a rivalry friend mm-hmm. um, about social media. Mm-hmm. And we're like, well, why didn't you pitch that first? Like, totally <laughs> buried the lead because she pitched it, and it just felt true and honest to the show. Yeah. And she, even though she spent probably a long time writing that page of that story and figuring it out, she willingly was trashed, <laughs> threw it in the garbage, and was like, yes, let's switch over to this one. Yeah. And it became a really good... Yeah. Episode that, again, expanding on the characters, revealing that they've got lives beyond each other. And you kind of know it when you hear it. You know, that's a good example of that, of um, some some things just, they just kind of lock in, like, oh, I just totally see that, and I can totally see where the comedy's going to come from. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, you know, it's like that cliche about, like, the thing with movies, like, well, what's my poster? You know, it's, yeah. Like, yeah. it's almost like that kind of just real basic thinking. I, I had one where, what if um, Lori and Lenny are fighting over the same dress? And that became Brawl in the Family after a very long, arduous process. But <laughs> but yeah, so we'll start with that. A lot of like the original nuggets definitely come from our real life experiences. Um, Whitney and I's first episode, Sleuther Consequences, which is about like someone has clogged the toilet and the mystery of Lincoln trying to figure out who it was because he gets blamed for it and he tries to clear his name. <gasps> Gross, Lincoln! You clogged the toilet again? In my life, my sister was notorious for blaming me for clogging the toilet. It was just like a family like thing that always happened. <laughs> and because she was the older sister, she was always believed. And then years later, I found when reading her diary that there was an entry um, of one of her New Year's resolution was to stop like blaming me for everything, like specifically <laughs> wow. like these unsolved like toilet mysteries. And I remember like running in and like showing my mom and being like, "There's evidence! Like I've got proof." <laughs> and that obviously like is so far removed from what the story actually ended up being, but just like that very like beginning toilet clogging incident. Um, I think kind of Sleuth should have had a tag at the beginning that said inspired by true events. I love, I will 
pitch Sammy some crazy story ideas, and it amazes me how many times she says, oh, I've done that. <laughs> Our hope by the end of the offsite is to have a good combination of sort of big family stories that involve everybody, but also some that are, you know, Lincoln and Clyde specific, and then a good mix of ones that get into, you know, the sisters' personalities a little more too. So that's part of the, the offsites too, kind of mapping out, you know, our next six or 12 weeks of writing. After the offsite, each writer takes their ideas and turns it into a one-page premise. The premises are then sent to the show's executives, lovingly referred to as the Danas. My name is Dana Clavarius. My name is Dana vasquez Eberhardt. We, we are, are the Danas. The Danas offer suggestions on each premise, making sure that the ideas work for the network and are true to the spirit of the show. For us, mm -hmm. we are really reacting to the story in the premise stage. There's usually a beginning, middle, and end. Has oftentimes the, the team is not nice enough to have said that it, it helps them shake themselves out of being so caught in the minutia of yeah, it. Yeah, inevitably we'll find something in there that they just sort of kept in their head. It's like, oh, we thought that was implied or, or clear. clear. And it's like, yeah. oh, <laughs> we're missing that. We, we do need to know yeah. what's going to happen at the end. Then the premises are sent back with the notes for something called a beat meeting. A beat meeting is when we all sit down together, we look at the premise, we break it out beat for beat, and I'll pitch jokes on it so that you have a lot of stuff to work with when you go to your outline. We spend a couple hours just beating out the entire story, the entire 11 minutes. Mm -hmm. Our stories always start with, you know, it's Carla's week, let's say. So Carla comes in and she has an idea and she it's an idea that maybe we've talked about as a log line. She has um, a couple ideas for like what directions it can take. Mm -hmm. And then it just becomes, um, I actually find this part of the process really fun. And hopefully the other writers do too. <laughs> Where we're like, yeah, that's cool. And let's sort of turn it every which way we can and, and take it in different directions. And it often ends up being something really different than what somebody came in with. But, but you sense in the room when they get excited about something, somebody will say something and then, yeah. oh, and it, whew, it just makes a total beeline. And then you you see that that collaborative effort that you kind of mm -hmm. created in the yeah. room, just people growing and building on that idea. Yeah, you definitely can get a sense just like looking at people's faces, <laughs> whether people are getting excited and they're kind of just like, all right, well, I guess we could write this story. And yeah. it's always, you know, great when you get to that place at the end of that first meeting when you're talking about really what is this story that everyone is like smiling and excited about working on this because it's something that we haven't done before and it sounds really funny and it sounds like a great conflict and, and all those sorts of things. And there's, it goes in a direction that maybe we don't anticipate. Okay, time to talk structure. Script structure is very important and very specific on The Loud House. Chris is very is very much about structure, so we have a four act structure on the Loud House. It's I'm funny sorry. it became four act because we were tired of saying That's first right. half of Act Two, second half of Act Two. It was like let's right. just make it four. <laughs> right. it I, I've already forgotten that it was originally three. Yeah. Act One, Lincoln wants something. Must have zombie bran. Act Two, Lincoln gets it. Yes. Act Three, it goes horribly wrong. But. Brand. And Act 4, he fixes the problem, usually by giving up what he was pursuing, uh, makes a sacrifice, um, and, and ends up usually getting something even better than what he hoped for. <gasps> you 
You got me my cereal? It's the least we could do. The only reason you didn't get this was because of us. In order to keep track of how each scene is paced and when to hit each beat, the writers divide the overall script length by four. So for a 16-page script, each act might be four pages. It kind of keeps a, a, a certain balance through the script that, you know, if you've got an 18-page script on your first draft and your midpoint is on page 10, well, you know you need to cut the first half down a little bit. And we like to make the scripts feel like you know what it's going to be about within the first couple pages. Sure. And you know what that main character is going to be doing about that sure. by the end of page four. No later than that. And if you have a an act one, we'll say, that's only two pages long, that doesn't mean your midpoint's on six. It means your second act, which is the meat of the cartoon, the fun of the cartoon, is going to be six pages long. You get more time for the fun. If, say, for example, Lincoln had to dress in drag in order to infiltrate a girl's party, <laughs> well, then I want to see a lot of that. Yeah. So certainly <laughs> so we, set that up pretty quick, yeah. and then six pages of drag. After the first two acts, there's a very important beat called the midpoint. It started off as giving the character what he or she wanted instead of at the end of the cartoon. Oh. They get it by the middle of the cartoon. And in a family, family, you know, when you deal with family, it's about consequences, right? The thing, everything you do mm -hmm. ripples throughout the house. Mm -hmm. So a character going after what he or she wants, and they get it, well, there are consequences to getting what you want, and it upsets the balance of the household. The structure can be uh, sort of seem impossible to fit sometimes you know we try to get what we call like the midpoint at the bottom of page eight and that is always our goal and sometimes it's at the bottom of ten and we're you know <laughs> our hair out Wendy, what was your worst bottom of like 12. <laughs> I didn't know if I could go on living. But then we we always get it somehow back to, you know, that structure of the page 8 midpoint and the 16-page script. And not only that, but now the 4X is turning into 8X. Yeah. That's right. true. Just in a kind of natural process. <laughs> Whoa. How does that, what does that mean? How's that happening? Well, it happens because it may just feel kind of linear if it's just like, okay, they tried and failed, tried and failed, tried and failed, got it. So sometimes we'll break it into two pieces where... They go this way, that doesn't work. And I think it kind of gives you that light at the end of the train track tunnel that, <laughs> you know, sometimes you sit down in front of 16 blank pages. It's just too much yeah. to even start typing. My fingers curl up sometimes before I can start typing. But when you've only well, I've got two pages to fill, that can go pretty quick. Um, and if you've got these little signposts along the way to reach those milestones, mm -hmm. then it makes the script easier. And it also guides you you know, tells you exactly where you need to go. And it prevents you from going off on really huge tangents of <laughs> eight pages of Lincoln getting dressed yeah. uh, in drag, and then you've only got negative two pages left. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you have to cut jokes that you love <laughs> to kill your dogs. I mean, you definitely have to, like, streamline and see, like, okay, like, even if I think, like, this joke run that's a couple lines long is really funny, like, if it's not adding to the story and, like, this half of my script is really long, sometimes you have to lose that stuff and find other places that you can add jokes in. Sometimes it's so hard to see what you can lose and the story still works. And that was, like, Mike and Chris are really good at that. Uh, there was an episode about Lola being kind of excommunicated from the group because she's a tattletale. They're just like, they have this group where they kind of, um, as kids, will talk about the terrible things they did. Uh, and they know it's like a safe zone. Mm -hmm. Lola's the one that kind of ruins that safe zone. And it turns out that she felt bad and she had to learn to not tattle so much. Because all I really wanted was to be included in your group. Then why'd you threaten to tell on us and make us do all that stuff? It was the only way I could get you to hang out with me. 
But then I realized I went about it the wrong way. Instead of using your secrets against you, I should have tried to earn your trust. So from now on, that's what I'm going to work on. If anyone needs me, I'll be up in my room for the next 30 days. Care package is welcome. But that story... Gosh, it started off with something called loud bucks, right? That the kids had this monetary system in the house where <laughs> Lola was hoarding them. And they're almost like favors, right? You could buy favors or like, hey, I want to sit in front of the TV and watch my show. I'll give you five loud bucks if I can have the spot. Whatever it was. But she somehow became the godfather <laughs> with all the loud bucks. And so they, the kids were coming to her and like taking loans. And then she'd have, they'd have to pay back with interest, et cetera. And we all thought that was funny. And yeah. it still could be a story. But I think every single step of that way, I think we all sensed it just wasn't coming together. The first episode I wrote, I was still a freelancer, um, was the sweet spot where the family is vying for seats in the van to go on vacation. And I had a whole bit at the very beginning where Lincoln had set his alarm and and it would go off after he had said a line of, like he's addressing the camera, talking about something, and he would say something ominous and then you would hear this chord of music and he would be like, oh, sorry, that's my alarm clock. <laughs> and then he would say something else. And he's like, oh, I thought I, you know, I didn't mean to hit snooze. And, and I thought that was really the height of clever. Um, <laughs> and that was the first thing to go. Like, we need to streamline this. We need Lincoln to get to the point faster. After that, that writer will take all the notes from the beat meeting, which Sammy conforms in an amazing way. <laughs> And then they'll write an outline four pages long. So Chris likes to translate a four-act structure into a four-page outline. So one page per act. They usually have about 10 days to do that. And then that four-page outline expands into a 16-page script. The first draft is then sent to the Danas for approval. These guys usually nail it because mm -hmm. their premise is a great, you know, general story area. Their outline becomes more detailed. And then the script pretty much nails it. I think usually our notes are, hey, why don't you just do that overall punch up so that every line is, you know, a zinger and uh, yeah. is, is as well written as it can possibly be. Sometimes their first drafts are just knee slappers. <laughs> like good old fashioned. Yeah. Great, I, done. Can yeah. we go ahead and record it? Because it's. It's fantastic. And I think the other thing yeah. we push for is just making sure that the, the moments are cartoony because yeah. at times any show can feel talky. And so our big thing is, have you thought about this moment in a cartoony way? Sometimes we will send up a, a first draft script and get approval on it, which is amazing. But what happens in the room is like, great, the Danas have signed off on it. Now we can go into it again and do another pass at it punch it up to a second draft slash punch punch up and everybody is willing to do that mm -hmm. and again with that schedule you could just be so tired it's like well it's approved let's just send this through the system right but nobody wants to do that everybody wants to make sure that they've made it the best they can before it moves on all right so we have a 16 page script with four acts and a midpoint at the bottom of page eight we have network approval let's record this thing wait what there's more of course there's more. So much of a cartoon's appeal is visual, and where the script meets the visuals for the first time is in the storyboarding process. That's why the board artists are a big part of the writing process. The first board pitch I ever saw was an eye-opening experience about what the artist contributes to the script and how much more they bring to it. There was one episode where one of the, I think it might have been Lincoln, Lori gets in Vanzilla and is driving off, and Lincoln runs out and yells something after her. Lori, you dirtbag! And I think it was Darren who boarded it, and he did it in silhouette. 
from the side of the house and you just see just the sh like Lincoln in a silhouette. You don't even see any character. And I was like, wow, that I never would have thought of that. And that image has stuck with me because I thought it was a fascinating way to just do the scene differently. None of us had said, oh, we need this artistic silhouette, you know. Yeah. We do our best to, to sort of set the scene and, and come up with the visual gags, but almost always the board artists come up with a much better take on it or a much more dynamic uh, sort of composition. So, you know, we try, so we don't say, okay, all the kids are hanging out and, and leave it at that and, you know, give them nothing to go off of. But um, if we give them just a couple of visual details, then usually the board artists just take it and, and turn it into something. Yeah, that's part of the, the structure of the process is that, <clears throat> you know, the, the script is kind of the foundation of the entire cartoon. Mm -hmm. if, if the script isn't working, then it's a problem. And you're just sending your problems down the road yeah. and, and letting other people fix it. Yeah. But at that, the scripts are only required to be 95% solid because we'd like to give the board artists as visual people that freedom to add a joke or add a piece of dialogue to the board because you discover things through the visual of uh, storyboarding and I love to see the writers afterwards like oh my gosh I can't believe so and so put that joke in there it's so good they just love to see how each script is just plussed a little bit more because it's a totally different sensibility from writers to artists in that process so that they're thinking about it differently and sometimes again you're if you're writing words, you don't necessarily see the pictures. Mm -hmm. But the people who are drawing the pictures go, well, there's that lamp there. I should probably make that lamp fall on that person. Yeah. <laughs> At one point in Girl Guru wrote that Lincoln and Clyde hide in trash cans. And I remember Darren just never took them out of the trash can. <laughs> but I guess in the insight, we never specified that either. But it worked really well. It was a choice he made. And it made us laugh. It was so funny. Like, they literally, they ran in the trash cans all the way home. And, like, get into Lincoln's house in the trash cans. Like, I remember having the same reaction as being like, oh, Darren. Like, that is so funny. It's hilarious. Um, excuse me, that goes in the recycling. Clyde, keep it down. The writer can't think about every single thing in every single shot all the time. Exactly. Every step is to make the step previous better, and they are given that freedom to make the script better, but the script is always... If you were to just storyboard the script as is, you'd still have a really good storyboard. Totally. Um, and I trust that those scripts, by the time they get to the storyboard artists are as good as they can be. These artists are so fantastic that there's no second guessing. Like I have all the faith in the world that when we see six weeks after, when we see the storyboard pitch to us, it's going to be fantastic. There's no fear at all that they're gonna take our, our precious script and do some damage to it. That's impossible. Another thing we wanted to know was how the characters and stories have evolved throughout the series. You know, outside of just telling Loud House stories, it was also Lincoln stories. He was the guy that invited us into his world, his his chaos. Mm -hmm. uh, but one thing that we've kind of started doing is telling stories from the point of view of the other sisters. Not only has it given us ten times as many stories as we could tell, <laughs> but it's also kind of challenged us to make the show just as entertaining without Lincoln in it. There's an episode that's got it's a Lisa specific episode. I don't think I'm allowed to talk about it yet. Uh, but it I think Lincoln has two lines in it, right? Mm -hmm. And he's in it all of 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they pitched the idea like, oh, that's a cute idea because it's so specific to Lisa's character. Yeah. Um, I won't say that I worried that Lincoln wasn't in it, but by the time I saw, read the script and then saw the storyboard pitch, I was like, we are so on the right track with this. Yeah. I didn't 
miss Lincoln at all because I know he's still around. I know he's part of the family. We've done such a good job yeah. of turning a show about a boy with 10 sisters into a show about a big family. Uh, you were just the, that excited to, to, to see this Lisa story. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It, mm-hmm. It's so it's so it's proof that we can we could tell a story from any of the sisters' point of view and still make it entertaining. Yeah. And I think it, we've just graduated the characters. They were, admittedly, from the short, just very uh, archetypical, a sporty one and a rock star and a and mm-hmm. a kind of a bossy one. And I think you know, there's always that worry. Is like, is that all they're going to be perceived as? But the thing that I hear most about the writing of the show is how people will mention that specific trait but oh they've they've given them so much more depth and so much more um uh, multifaceted characteristics and that's the one thing i think mike and his team have done well is evolve those characters beyond where i thought they could go um i cool. kept them simple because it's easier to write yeah but they've given them so many eccentricities and quirks <laughs> that i never expected could be as part of the characters but they become that yeah and then of course it, allows you to tell even more stories not just based on the fact that Luna's a rock star right but these eccentric other little yeah. bits about her that we could reveal they did start out you know kind of with their one single identifying trait um, because in introducing 11 characters that's kind of the only way to figure out who everybody is and, and what the story is early on but as we've kind of been diving into uh, the individual sisters and and their personalities um, yeah, it's been great. A lot yeah. of times, it seems like it's like a small little thing that we mm-hmm. all will mutually just fall in love with, and then we know the character. It was mm-hmm. like yeah. when we were writing One Flew Over the Loud House, and suddenly it became clear that Lenny was the nicest one. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And we just yeah. all realized it and loved that about her and kind of mm-hmm. ran with it. And similarly, Mike came back from Target one lunch break and said that these teenage girls behind him he couldn't stop laughing because one of them said, I am literally going to buy this. And from then on, we like knew who Lori was. <laughs> that was literally embarrassing. Mike, what are some of your favorite little added extra things that you and your team have added to the characters since you guys started the show? One that just definitely jumps to mind is um, that brainy Lisa is also into hip hop. Um, <laughs> gangster does, rap, Yeah, right? gangster rap, West I Coast. That. I love West Coast, specifically West, West Coast. Coast. Specific, yeah, specifically. <laughs> um, and sometimes things just, you know, get pitched in the room as kind of a, an off-the-wall joke, basically. But mm-hmm. then everybody's like, oh, that would be hilarious if we just kind of added that um, layer to her character. Yeah. Like, it's funny because it was a joke. Ha-ha, she's listening to rap. Yeah. But then you make it part of her character. I think, is it uh, Sherlock Holmes in the, the, the TV show? He listens to this aggressive music because it uh, coincidentally it just clears his mind it allows him to think which is weird but it's like yeah there's probably a real good reason why she listens to rap as a four year old yeah (laughs) Um, but it it becomes part of their character yeah in in, which started off sometimes as a joke but sometimes it's serious what we do with the characters that's so great there's a running joke I mean there was a silly episode early early on and we don't do fart jokes often (laughs) that Lori I like where this is going yeah Lori (laughs) has gas problem right and Uh she's toots on occasion but it was just for that episode but it's become kind of a running thing that she's the gassier one in the house um and people they will comment on it yeah we don't even have to have her fart anymore it's just a comment that we all know she's the gassy one there's a crop dusting joke coming up at a script that just cracks me up every time but laurie isn't farting in the episode it's just the comment about it that they know yeah and the fact that the kids know those 
traits about their siblings make them more real. It's fascinating, too, because at the beginning, they were very Lincoln-focused, and it's been nice to see the show open up to include the sisters. And the one note that Chris Savino, the show creator, gave us after our last offsite was, <laughs> you don't have enough Lincoln stories. You know, we've just so focused on exploring the sisters and their relationships that we were like, oh, we forgot about the main character. <laughs> Big mistake. There's such an awareness through the characters of the other characters that I think is, it's authentic, but it's also funny. They're not necessarily jokes, like laugh out loud kind of, here's mm-hmm. a joke with a punchline. Right. It is just a humorous kind of uh, observation. observation within their household. Yeah. And we can tell when we're writing for the sisters and for Lincoln as well, when it just feels like we're getting in a rut, like we're just kind of making the same joke or going to the same well too many times and Mm -hmm. Luna's just, you know, playing her axe again or whatever, that then we really feel um, just kind of to keep ourselves entertained. Like, well, what other aspects of her have we not explored and where else can we go? Yeah. Whether it's something serious like some insecurity or just some funny like she farts in the car or whatever (laughs) like Lori she could blame it on Lori but I think we are also challenged um, you know we've been lucky enough I'll say to have been given a third season to expand on the characters and you want to kind of not reinvent yourself but evolve as well and we've been tasked to put the characters in and -hmm. push the things that they have to deal with on a on a yeah. real level, yeah. uh, not really base ideas, but real deep emotional things um, that everybody deals with in their lives, short of death yeah. uh, so far, but really deal with um, you know more dramatic uh, issues in the household. And then the joy of it is how the Loud family, who we've come to know over two seasons, are able to tackle it not only individually, but as a family, you always get back to that that one key word. It's like it's family. Lincoln, you bonehead! You gave them the wrong picture! Yep, I knew you'd blow this too. No, I gave them the right one. The one that chose the real you. The perfect you. Aww, thank you, Lincoln! By the way, you all might want to put your presents for Mom and Dad in here. Since they'll all look super lame next to my awesome gift. <laughs> when I was waiting to hear whether I got the job as story editor, and you know, obviously was up against other people, Chris sent me this text. I hadn't heard from him for a few weeks, and he said, "Like, what is the one word that you feel is most important for this series?" And Oof. I was like, "Oh God, Oof. that's p- p- talk about no putting pressure. you on the spot." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so, of course. Uh, I just threw a lot of things at him just to cover all the bases. But <laughs> the one that I fortunately got in there that was the answer he was looking for, it was heart. Yeah. Um, and that's been borne out. Like, it's really true that the heart and the kind of love among the family members is really important to the show without trying to be too treacly. And I think it's something that kids really connect to as well as the comedy. But I think having the heart in there is just an essential element of the show. Yeah, we... I don't know if we've done it, but I would say that we are willing to dedicate an entire page of script, which is a lot of time on screen, uh, making you believe that the characters apologize to each other or yeah. had that emotional turn about each other. Uh, no jokes. Just mm-hmm. it could go straight to heart for an entire page. And if I believe Lincoln apologized and Laurie says, I accept your apology, then we've done really what the 
the core idea of the show is, is is believing that's a real family. Totally. And I think when you go that far with the emotional side, the next joke, which we always have a joke right after a, a particularly emotional moment, is somehow way funnier because you <laughs> put this chasm in between people of, wow, I could start crying any second. Like, oh, thank goodness, here's a joke. I can laugh again. <laughs> and it could be the dumbest joke in the world, but it is also at the same time the most relieving joke in the world because of the heart that's in it. Yeah. But I think that that's the key. That always, whether we say the word out loud or not, or whether we even ask the question, do I believe it anymore, it's always kind of an unspoken thing in the room that people yeah. are aiming for. And of course, you know, I've worked on shows where it's like, well, that character apologized right there. Well, why did he? I don't believe that he did. It was like, well, it said he had to apologize, so yeah. he apologized. But it's like, well, I want to believe it. Yeah. And if it means sacrificing screen time to make you believe it, then that's maybe the thing that sets the show apart from other shows is the believability. I agree, yeah. Uh, and the time spent to make you believe it. Absolutely. And it's time well spent. I remember as a kid, I would watch live action sitcoms and I honestly had the thought of like, man, these people should just get a divorce because they hate each other. Like, I'm like, how is this? How are you trying to tell me that this is a family that are still together? They really hate each other. This is really bad. So time well spent. From spending so much time with the writers and crew of The Loud House, one thing is abundantly clear. The love and respect that the writers have for each other comes out in the characters and stories they tell together. And it all starts in the writer's room. This is the most comfortable room I have ever been in. And you need that if you're going to pitch something and make a complete jerk of yourself. <laughs> but it is so safe and it is so accepting and kind and loving that there's no fear. This is the best room I have ever been in. We have the perfect relationship. None of us want to upset it. You know, it's a club now that we're <laughs> going to charge dues to other people to get it. The lack of ego in the room has been so inspiring to me. When I write a script, I can't wait to get in the room because <laughs> like, I'm already insecure about it. Let's please help me make this better. Yeah. Of course they do. And I hope that that is the same feeling they get. Like as a team, we are writing the best scripts. And hey, look, in, at the end of it, if it turns out to be the most amazing episode ever that everybody loves, their name is on it, right? Yeah. Uh, they yeah. can take all the credit they want <laughs> when they're accepting their award. Yeah. Uh, but it yeah. really is a sight to see and to, to kind of behold watching the immediate just kind of disconnect from the emotional part of writing to mm -hmm. just this is the process that we have to go through now. This is the least competitive room I feel like I've ever been in and it's so nice because it's like they don't want to be better than you or even compare themselves to you. They just want to help you. So they see your script, they try to make it funnier, they try to bring out your voice. It's a team. It's a great team. And when you're that safe, like you, uh, you said something yesterday that was just off the cuff that cracked the room up and immediately became a joke in the episode. And I think if you don't feel that safe, you're not going to say those things. Mm -hmm. And half the time, those are the best discoveries. So you're just, I'm just going to say something stupid. And you're like, oh my God, they loved it. You know? <laughs> but you wouldn't have that comfort to do that if you weren't in a safe space. It's been kind of remarkable how everybody is so open to everybody else's input. And there really hasn't, I think Chris is exactly right, there really hasn't ever been uh, ego issues in the room with, with this group of writers. Just lucky that we like each other so much because we do, we spend like all day together every single day and like we just like have so much fun and like sometimes it'll happen that we'll kind of like wrap up a little, not like super early, but you know like a little early and like we'll all just like stay and like keep chatting because yeah. like we just like like hanging out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
watch We're candle super lucky. on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that feeling of knowing that you can pitch and, and totally bomb, but it's okay, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't mean that, that you're a total failure and you need to leave the room. Um, and just knowing that you guys will find something in it and pitch on it and, and come up with a much better take and that, you know, we're all in it together is just such a comfort. There you have it, our season two finale. Thanks to the Loud House writers for letting us into their inner circle. We want to thank you, the listeners, so much for coming along. Thanks to the awesome crew who puts this podcast together. This podcast is produced by Jonathan Highlander, Dana Vasquez Eberhardt, Kelly Smith, Andrew Hubner. Original music by Useful Creatures. This week's episode edited by Jonathan Highlander. All of the incredible social media for our podcast is made by Narbe Manassians, Sammy Armager, David Watson. And thanks to the man who works at controls and makes me sound better than I have a right to, Manny Grava. We're going to be taking a little break for a few months to work on season three. Until then, from the bottom of my heart, keep watching cartoons.